guys, thanks for joining us. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you're coming back again, thanks for coming back. Um, so today's episode is going to be about the Armenian genocide. And I'm really in like a no BS mood today. So I want to cut through the housekeeping as much as possible. And I just want to say that, yes, this is the third time I am editing and recording well, not editing anymore, because thank God Caitlin's here. But this is the, the third time I'm recording this episode, because I had lost the two previous audio files that I had when I had recorded them. And that's why Kayla and I decided to redo it. And I think, like, after this, I'm just going to stop with the editing. I don't think I can do it. I don't think it's it's for me. <laughs> so, shout out to Kaylin. Um and yeah, before we kind of get into the episode, we do just kind of want to give a trigger warning because this episode um, has to do with a lot of like ethnic cleansing, uh, violence against women and children, um, structural violence, genocide. So if that's something that maybe you don't feel like you can stomach right now, just based on all the things that are like happening in the world that are negative, that's totally fine. We get it. But the reason that we specifically wanted to talk about the Armenian genocide is one that the that the anniversary of it passed um, April 24th but also because I feel like if we have the the platform and the reach that we have by doing this podcast and we're not utilizing it to actually bring attention to really serious issues like genocide or um, like examining kind of how genocides have unfolded in the past because we are seeing them happen now and I feel like if every episode was just us talking about Coachella and Ariana Grande and problematic celebrities I feel like we wouldn't be really fulfilling our full extent and our full capability as podcasters because this platform is small but it's still something and I feel like just us talking about it and mentioning this issue again and bringing it up will hopefully put it into the minds of some people who previously did not even know that it existed. Um, yeah, and so with that, I don't think we said our names. Oh, yeah. I'm Carissa. I'm Kaylin. Cool, and let's get into the unfolding of the Armenian Genocide. So if you hear um, paper shuffling, that's because I have a book open in front of me. And also before I get into like the actual details of this genocide, I just want to say that I did take a genocide and ethnic cleansing class about, I think, a year or so ago, and I took it with Dr. Amy Randall of the History Department, and she's amazing. She approached every genocide with, like, tact and knowledge, and she really helped us kind of formulate our own perspective on these genocides that have happened, and I feel like her influence in that class and how how much she interested me in not just like the morbid way but kind of like why is it that every time a genocide happens people are always so quick to say never again but it continues to happen and it's happening right now mm -hmm. in multiple countries all across the world and we are not doing anything about it um and so i'm going to be reading a couple excerpts from her book that she edited um, and we read for the class and it's called genocide and gender in the 20th century a comparative survey and it covers a lot of different genocides but i'm specifically going to be pulling from paragraphs that have to do with the armenian genocide and so i mentioned that april 24th is the armenian genocide uh, remembrance day and 
It's also one of the most controversial and unacknowledged genocides, even though it happened, you know, like literally, because it happened in 1915. Over 100 years ago. Yeah, it's over 100 years ago. And it's relatively fresh, you know, in comparison mm -hmm. to the genocide of like Native Americans that happened over a period of like 300, 400 years ago. Um, and the significance of April 24th is that that the starting date of conventionally held to be April 24th, 1915, the day that Ottoman authorities rounded up, arrested, and deported from Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, to the region of Ankara, 235 to 270 Armenian intellectuals and community leaders, the majority of whom were eventually murdered. Um, and I talked about Dr. Amy Randall um, and I'll kind of get into my own theories later about why I think genocides continue to happen, even though so many people, you know, like universally, you're never going to meet anyone who's like, yeah, genocide's a good thing, right? But yeah. it's always the, the things that happen behind the scenes mm -hmm. and what somebody's actually thinking in their head that they're not comfortable sharing. Um, so I want to start by kind of providing the definition of genocide, which was coined in 1948 and utilized by the UN after the Holocaust. And the definition goes as follows. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And because the definition of genocide did not exist at the time of the Armenian Genocide, categorizing it as a genocide more than a century later is made more difficult than it would have been had the definition existed and been utilized by the UN at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and 149 countries have ratified this understanding. Um, and despite this, the International Court of Justice has repeatedly stated that the convention embodies principles that are part of general customary international law. This means that whether or not states have ratified the Genocide Convention, they are all bound as a matter of law by the principle that genocide is a crime prohibited under international law. The ICG has also stated that the prohibition of genocide is a peremptory norm of international law, or IS cogens. I don't know what any, any of that means, because I'm okay. assuming if you know law and international mm -hmm. law, then you would know. Um, and consequently, no derogation from it is allowed. And that's referenced from the UN's website. And so it really doesn't matter, like, what 149 countries have ratified this, mm -hmm. this understanding because every single country is obligated by legal, you know, limitations and restrictions and law to obey this definition of genocide mm -hmm. and to not violate it. And Article 2 of the Genocide Convention contains a narrow definition of the crime of genocide, which includes two main elements. A mental element, the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such, and a physical element, which includes the following five acts, enumerated exhaustively. Killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So with this in mind, let's get into the timeline of the Armenian Genocide. Yes, so the timeline um, is going to be interesting. We're going to start pre-genocide. Mm -hmm. So Armenia has a history of being very Christian. 
In the 4th century uh, AD, it became the first country to declare Christianity as its religion. Um, in the 15th century, as control of the region, Ar Armenia was shifted from entity to entity. It was absorbed into being part of the Ottoman Empire, which I think a lot of um, us who have gone through you know, education um, have always heard about the Ottoman Empire. It was massively powerful. Ruled over 600 years, it covered a vast expanse of just like physical land and geography. Um, and the Ottoman rulers, rulers, much like their most of their subjects, were Muslim. They permitted religious minorities like the Armenians to maintain some autonomy, but they also subjected Armenians who they viewed as uh, quote unquote infidels to unequal and unjust treatment. So like an example of this would be that Christians had to pay higher taxes than Muslims um, and were given very few political and legal rights and um, things like that. So you see that, you know, they have some autonomy, but not really when it comes to a lot of um, legal, civic and social um, policies imposed upon them as a minority group. Uh, despite this, Armenians tended to be better educated and wealthier than their Turkish neighbors, um, who in turn grew to resent their success. Uh, my mom always likes to say, follow the money. Um, and economic threats have, for, I don't know if this would be an exaggeration, but I would say like for the vast majority of the sure. history of the world, um, economic threats posed by a separate group has always been really a key marker in terms of why a group is a certain group is being targeted by another group mm -hmm. particularly by a dominant group because even in like medieval england and stuff um jewish people were really targeted mm -hmm. and kind of vilified um and that was because a lot of them were business owners and they kind of were the ones that were maybe had their hands on the money a little bit more than non-jewish christian people mm -hmm. so yeah i feel like that's totally valid and like money literally will drive people to do things that they wouldn't have done without money mm -hmm. you know per se mm -hmm. right because i mean like we really don't know but i feel like money truly is the motivation and like the downfall mm -hmm. for a lot of different groups and people mm -hmm. yeah i mean this is not necessarily related to the overall topic of the podcast, but um, while I was working with the Center for Asian American Media, I went to a screening of a film on Japanese American incarceration during World War II. And something they uncovered was that white farmers in California were the main lobbyists to get Japanese Americans incarcerated because they had turned the Central Valley of California from like a barren wasteland into the uh, fruit basket of America. So again, follow the money. <laughs> um, so and going back, so this resentment was compounded by suspicions that the Christian Armenians would be more loyal to Christian governments. Um, for example, that of the Russians, um, who they actually shared an unstable border with Turkey, which is interesting. Um, than they were going to, um, than they were to the Ottoman Caliphate. So, the idea that they that they posed a threat because they thought that they would be more loyal to a government that was being run by uh, folks who were in the same religious group as them. Yeah. Um, 
these suspicions grew more accurate as the Ottoman um, Empire crumbled. So at the end of the 19th century, the despotic Turkish Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who was obsessed with loyalty above all and infuriated by the nascent Armenian campaign to win basic civil rights, um, declared that he would solve the quote-unquote Armenian question once and for all. Um, And I think we have to really point out that he was infuriated by a campaign by Armenians to win basic civil rights. Mm. I'm just going to repeat that. Mm -hmm. They were looking for basic civil rights. Um, And then so now we're kind of moving into the beginnings of the genocide. So between 1894 and 1896, um, in response to large-scale protests by Armenians, Turkish military officials, soldiers, and ordinary men sacked Armenian villages and cities and massacred their citizens. Um, In these years, hundreds of thousands of Armenians were murdered. Um, And then moving forward into 1908, a new government came into power in Turkey. Um, They were reformers who called themselves the quote-unquote Young Turks, and they overthrew Sultan Abdul Hamid um, and established a more modern constitutional government. And so at first, the Armenians were actually hopeful that they would have an equal place in this new state, but they soon learned that um, the, the nationalistic young Turks wanted most of all was to, quote-unquote, Turkify the empire. Um, so according to this way of thinking, non-Turks, and especially Christian non-Turks, were a huge threat to that new state. Um, in 1914, the Turks entered World War I on the side of Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and so I think everyone has heard about um, World War I. I think, fittingly, this we're recording this after Memorial Day as well. Yeah. Um, Though, I mean, Memorial Day has, there's a whole history with that that yeah, people don't know, but. And at the same time, Ottoman religious authorities declared a holy war against all Christians except their allies. Again, mm. um, that little qualifier, except their allies. Mm. Um, military leaders also began to argue that the Armenians were traitors. If they thought they could win independence, that if the allies were victorious, this argument went. The Armenians would be a greater would be eager to fight for the enemy. Um, so this again, this idea, this distrust um, that they had, um, and as the war intensified, Armenians organized volunteer battalions to help the Russian army fight against the Turks in the Caucasus, Caucasus region. Mm-hmm. Um, these events and general Turkish suspicion of the Armenian people led the Turkish government to push for a quote-unquote removal of the Armenians from the war zones along the Eastern Front. Mm. And so, Persa, do you want to go into partic- in specific the genocide itself? Yeah, so um, after that, the ordinary Armenians were turned out of their homes and sent on death marches through the Mesopotamian desert without food or water. And frequently, the marchers were stripped naked and forced to walk under the scorching sun until they dropped dead. People who stopped to rest were shot. At the same time, the Young Turks created a special organization, which in turn organized killing squads or butcher battalions to carry out, as one officer put it, the liquidation of the Christian elements. These killing squads were often made up of murderers and other ex-convicts. They drowned people in rivers, threw them off of cliffs, crucified them, and burned them alive. In short order, the Turkish countryside was littered with Armenian corpses. 
Records show that during this Turkification campaign, government squads also kidnapped children, converted them to Islam, and gave them to Turkish families. In some places, they raped women and forced them to join Turkish harems or serve as slaves. Muslim families moved into the homes of deported Armenians and seized their property. And I do want to read a quote just from the book that I mentioned before that Dr. Randall edited. Um, and again, it's called Genocide and Gender in the 20th Century. And this is from um, the chapter that's specifically called Exposed Bodies. Let me read the actual name. Oh yeah, Exposed Bodies, a conceptual approach to sexual violence during the Armenian Genocide. And so I just want to go ahead and say that this is a very graphic first uh, eyewitness account. Um, so if you are sensitive, especially to sexual violence, I just want to warn you that, you know, everything so far we've, that we've, con uh, sorry, covered has been, you know, like really dark and mm -hmm. solemn, but I feel like this, this, sometimes you just need to hear what people saw in order to really understand the magnitude of the psychological terror, the physical terror, and like the after effects mm -hmm. on these populations. Um, and so the eyewitness account goes as follows. In Dilmen, there is also the same amount of murdered Armenians whose martyrdom was carried out in the most horrific manner. They cut off the feet of living people with saws. They cut their wrists in the same way. They cut noses, cheeks, and lips off with scissors. They burned those parts of the body which are more sensitive. Both the elderly and the young were killed by frightful tortures, without regard to gender. We saw the traces of boundless brutality. Glowing skewers were run through genitals of both women and men, and they were put to death this way. And um, everything that resembled Armenianness, including facial features, were basically um, cut off. And for a whole month during the summer of 1915, corpses were observed floating down the river Euphrates nearly every day, often in batches of two to six corpses bound together. The male corpses are in many cases hideously mutilated, sexual organs cut off, and so on. The female corpses are ripped open. And I feel like, let me read this one next quote, and then I'll kind of get into explaining what I think of what I just read. Um, and so the woman who wrote this, let me just say her name, because I always hate like not using people's names when, I, when I'm mentioning something. Oh whole slog. She says, um, by making victims' bodies non-gender specific, perpetrators stripped the victims of their identity and made them appear asexual and less human. And I just feel like, let me read this one next quote. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm always like, I could say something, but I feel like she has spent so long reading these eyewitness accounts and mm -hmm. articulating how she feels. So this next quote goes, in each step of the violence, which Staub considers the continuum of destruction, a layer of identity, religious identity, economic identity, gender identity, and human identity is stripped away from the victim group so that the identity of the domin dominant culture group can be solidified. And I feel like that completely makes sense mm -hmm. because um, we can kind of go back to like people who uh, commit murder, right? A lot of times the way somebody is murdered or the way someone murders someone says a lot about like their underlying emotions, mm -hmm. kind of their mindset during the attack. And I feel like the more desecrated a body is, the more it shows contempt mm -hmm. or like, you know, wanting to completely eradicate mm -hmm. any resemblance of what this person was before and killing men and women, you know, um, indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. um, and just mutilating their genitals, I think, is also a very 
significant thing and a lot of times sexualized violence is not really talked about in the Mm -hmm. aftermath of genocides because we might get into a little bit later but a lot of women who were raped and kind of like put into these harems by the turkish they were not able to return back to their original communities because either you know their entire family had been murdered or like they had born a child that was half armenian half turkish and nobody within her community was willing to accept you know the child Mm -hmm. of a rapist and so she was kind of pushed out of her community in that way because the child would be like a living constant reminder of the like the personification of the violence and you know she wouldn't be treated well either in the Mm -hmm. turkish community because she was armenian and that was the whole reason that this genocide was carried out against them yeah Yeah. and just like if you think about it in in most societies um like the genital or like the private areas Mm -hmm. are something that like you just don't walk around showing them off right Mm -hmm. to take something that is so private and intimate and is something that a lot of people view as only sharing at least like in 1915 Mm -hmm. right like people weren't you know, as open-minded in terms of, Mm -hmm. like, sexual expression, sexual identity, um, sexual partners even, as they are Mm -hmm. now, and so that would have been something that was very personal and very Mm -hmm. sacred and almost honorable, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying it's right, because Mm -hmm. I just think that the the pressure that's put on women to maintain that sacred honor is completely wrong, and we shouldn't be valuing a woman's worth on her virginity, Mm -hmm. but that's just the reality of the situation, Mm -hmm. And even in a lot of countries around the world today, that's mm-hmm. the case. And I feel like at, at a certain point, we have all internalized that because that's mm-hmm. the message that has been kind of fed to us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like taking something that is so private and personal and just completely ruining it is just like a sense and emotion of like complete disregard mm-hmm. for this person's existence. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What are your thoughts on, yeah. on it? I think it's... The idea that targeted on on the physical body of people, the targeted areas are those are like genital areas or areas that distinguish, you know, biological sex mm-hmm. um, and things like that. Are the fact that those are the things that are targeted? I think speaks a lot to the fact that um, again, like what the the quote that you read. This, this desire to make them less than human. Mm-hmm. Um, I am right now currently taking a class uh, called uh, Black Women Writers, and it's focused on an, on neo-slave narratives. Mm-hmm. And one of the books we read was um, called Dessa Rose by Shirley Ann Williams. It's, really, it's a really great book. I mm-hmm. uh, highly recommend. But it was based off of a real historical event in which a an enslaved woman led a... Um, revolt on a slave coffle, which a slave coffle, for those of you who don't know, are kind of the things that they like use. the barracks, kind of? Uh, no, so it was like kind of carriages or wagons that they used to transport slaves gotcha. um, as, as they were trying, as they were selling them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a point in that book that was always really made to... Um, singularly identify a lot of times the um, main character Dessa Rose mm-hmm. is the fact that she has she had been whipped by her master mm-hmm. um, over her uh, genital areas mm-hmm. so badly that it, you can't they're Distinguished. indistinguishable anymore 
Um, and I think targeting areas like that or um, and destroying those areas, I think it's it speaks to, I think in some ways, the power that those that that has because it is such an intimate and personal part of the body um, and of people. And it's, and a lot of times, I mean, thinking back to like times, time periods like this, like we were saying, a lot of people like their identity was really physical. They saw their identity physically embodied through, you know, areas like their, um, like on the man, like the penis or in for women, like their vagina and things like that. So I think, yeah, I mean, I'm starting to repeat myself again, so I'll stop, but Um, I think there is something very powerful about the fact that um, it is so deliberate that that was what it was. That was the target of so much brutality, Mm -hmm. um, ultimately. Like the actual genocide, I feel like those quotes basically sum up what it was like. And, you know, it happened happened, uh, that the October 1918 was when the Mudros armistice was uh, signed and sealed the Ottoman defeat and initiated a new political climate in which Armenians could rescue or be rescued. Um, and it stipulated the release of Ottoman prisoners of war, a clause that everyone interpreted to include Islamized women and children. Mm-hmm. So that's women who were taken and put into, you know, like to basically become a sex slave. Mm-hmm. Um, children who were abducted and told, you know, like, you're not Armenian, you're Turkish, you're not Christian, you're Muslim, mm-hmm. and kind of brainwashed in that way. Um, but it was, it's really interesting because I, I'm reading right now from uh, another essay within this, the book that I mentioned before. Um, and this one is by Lerna Ekmek Sioglu. I'm so sorry. She, yeah, that is a, yeah, I'm doing my best. <laughs> um, but she says that the, the word orphan uh, referred not only to children without one or both parents, but also women who lacked a surviving male family member because mm-hmm. it was expected that, like, those were the people who mm-hmm. were supposed to come collect you, right? Mm-hmm. Now, whether, like, they were actually successful in finding you or not, because even, you know, like, 30, 40 years later, when mm-hmm. the Holocaust had happened and everyone was trying to kind of, like, pick up the pieces of their lives before the Holocaust and find people that, you know, like, they were connected to in some way, it was really difficult. And Mm -hmm. so I'm just imagining, like, how difficult it was for these people. And the Sevres Treaty, which was the first post-war peace treaty the Ottomans signed with the Allies, um, it, it not only annulled all conversions to Islam between 1914 and 1918, which is so interesting to me Mm -hmm. because it's like, wow, like, they must have taken it really seriously to even mention religion mm-hmm. as something that was used as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, but it also required the Ottoman Turkish government to assist in all efforts to find those concerned and deliver them back to their original communities. Um, and a problem that deeply troubled both Greek and Armenian rescue efforts were was those people who were who refused to be rescued. Many captives wanted to remain where they were. 
and I feel like this has a lot to do with, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Stockholm Syndrome, mm-hmm. but it's basically when you are either held hostage or held captive for so long that you have almost kind of become brainwashed to be sympathetic with your um, captor and, you know, like to not be able to really process mm-hmm. what you should be doing because you haven't had that constant exposure to a normal outside world. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it says here that um, in, in reference to the women and children who were um, abducted, their abduction, loss of chastity, abuse at enemy hands, or bearing of a child by an enemy man constituted such a deep disgrace that many married women did not want to leave their relatively bearable situations for lives of certain stigmatization back in their native communities. Um, And that's kind of what we were talking about before, right? With the, you know, like, so not only were the victims of the genocide, the actual people Mm -hmm. who were physically killed and didn't make it out of the genocide, you have a whole generation and a generation after a generation because like as Kaylin will get into a little bit later, this issue and this genocide has still not been fully recognized as a genocide by the Turkish government. I know that like Kim Kardashian, who is Armenian, mm-hmm. um, she was really pressuring Obama to, while he was in office to recognize mm-hmm. the Armenian genocide as an official genocide, and he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, when you start talking about politics and why one country isn't willing to support another country, you always have to look at like, like affiliations, mm-hmm. personal agendas, kind of like what is in it for them if they don't, mm-hmm. you know, formally recognize something as a genocide mm-hmm. and what's in it for them if they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, like when you have an unresolved issue or an unresolved trauma being passed down from not only the first generation mm-hmm. after a genocide like this, but not getting addressed, not being resolved, and then being mm-hmm. carried down to their children, mm-hmm. and that constant fear and that, mm-hmm. like, not having closure, I mm-hmm. think, is also something that is very, very real mm-hmm. in the Armenian community today, mm-hmm. um, and it is something that they are constantly activating, uh, activating, act, is that not activating? Activist they are constantly mobilizing for, you know, because it is one of the most Mm -hmm. significant issues that faces Armenians today. And Mm -hmm. it's not even like, okay, after the genocide happened, everything was dandy. Like, Mm -hmm. they went back to their normal lives. Can you imagine if you had been in this genocide and then afterwards people are like, okay, you're you're free to go. Like, Mm -hmm. where do you even go? Mm -hmm. How do you go back to your neighborhood Mm -hmm. where you might have been neighbors with somebody who Mm -hmm. turned you in for being Armenian? Mm -hmm. Where you have somebody who was so ready for you to leave your house that they went and looted all your stuff Mm -hmm. and you don't have anything. Your complete identity has been shattered, you know? And like, imagine going back into that situation without your closest friends and family and the community that you identify with, you know, it's very like, it's really difficult because I've seen, I've seen this happen in a lot of like the genocide aftermaths Mm -hmm. where people are kind of like, okay, we're free, but like, where do we go? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think if they knew where to go, how to go there, what to do when they got there and all of that and kind of like had a more definite, like laid out plan for what was Mm -hmm. going to happen to them if they chose to leave their current situation Mm -hmm. then I think a lot more people would have been willing to kind of leave their situations Mm -hmm. and return back to their communities but like I don't blame them and Mm -hmm. it's completely a normal mental thing because 
I think at a certain point, your brain just kind of becomes numb to, to certain things to, mm-hmm. like, help you survive, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, Kaylin, with that, do you want to get into the controversy? Yeah, and I mean, quickly mentioning when you talked about how it doesn't affect just one generation, it will affect subsequent de- generations, too, mm-hmm. um, is this idea of historical trauma. Um, and so this was a, a, an idea or, like, a concept that I was made aware of or introduced to by um, Dr. Griffin when I I took a, I'm trying to think of which class it was, but um, I, I think it was in my uh, Intro to African American Studies class where we talked about historical trauma because it's something that's very present in a lot of um, communities of color, um, particularly within the African American community and the Native American community. So um, I'm reading here from a paper done by Michelle Sotero, who was at UNLV at the time. She said, a key feature of historical trauma theory is that the psychological and emotional consequences of the trauma experience are transmitted to subsequent generations through physiological, environmental, and social pathways, resulting in an intergenerational cycle of trauma response. Mm -hmm. So this idea that it doesn't affect, it doesn't, it affects the subsequent generations not only mm-hmm. um, through things that she calls like vicarious trauma- traumatization through mm-hmm. um, practices like oral uh, oral traditions, storytelling, passing on those stories orally, orally mm-hmm. to your children or grandchildren, things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea that you your body has a physical, physiological response to it. Yeah. Um, and so um, particularly with historical trauma theory is that... Um, communities who have suffered immense trauma or um, have been targeted through by violence or um, subjugation mm-hmm. e- genocide um, their the subsequent generations that follow will then display health disparities mm-hmm. so this is for example this is why you see health disparities um, from between white Americans and African Americans or Native Americans. Um, the idea that it wasn't just, it's not just because like their bodies, the, the false idea that their bodies are like different. And mm-hmm. so they have like higher rates of uh, certain diseases. Basically, like eugenics or, yeah. or like mm-hmm. medical racism. Yeah. Um, it's because of the trauma inflicted upon them by a dominant group. Yeah. 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 So I just wanted to shout shout that out and put that in there when we're thinking about the idea that um, you can I mean in many ways you can argue that um, the genocide isn't over because it's still affecting so many generations like a hundred years after it supposedly ended and I feel like I have a real problem with the UN because they they came together in 1948 after the holocaust um, and they were finally motivated by that to put (laughs) together like an official convention on genocide but I've also noticed that with a lot of the genocides that we're seeing today, mm-hmm. like, and they're controversial. Literally, they're only controversial because of the reason that it could literally fill every check mark of genocide. Mm-hmm. But if the UN isn't willing to like actually identify it as a genocide, nothing's gonna happen. It's mm-hmm. not gonna be officially recognized as a genocide. And why would the UN not want to officially like recognize something as a genocide? Because if they do, then they are obligated mm-hmm. to act on it. Mm-hmm. And think about the money, mm-hmm. the military, like mm-hmm. kind of strategi- strategization, mm-hmm. strategi- 
strategy. Yeah, like yeah. the military strategies, the financial commitment, mm-hmm. and just kind of like you are then obligated to act and stop this genocide. But if you don't even recognize that a genocide is happening, mm-hmm. nobody can be like, oh, well, you said it was a genocide and you didn't do anything mm-hmm. because you haven't said it was a genocide. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times different um like mass violence against different groups will be categorized Mm -hmm. as like ethnic cleansing because Mm -hmm. that's kind of like as far as i know i could totally be wrong but there is no convention on ethnic cleansing Mm -hmm. and i feel like these smaller categorizations they originally had distinct features that made something Mm -hmm. like ethnic cleansing versus a genocide but now i feel like because they don't want to act for whatever reason right Mm -hmm they are categorizing things that are genocides as ethnic cleansing Mm -hmm. and they're being very wishy-washy about like why they're not doing anything because at the end of the day like kaylin and i we are small people and i never want to like you know downplay the influence that just one person has because Mm -hmm. it's really hard to want to change the world if you are convinced that your voice does not make a difference at all but at the end of the day Kaylin and I are not going to be the deciding factors in Mm -hmm. whether a genocide ends. We are not going to be the deciding factors in whether global warming is, you know, like, begins reversal. Mm -hmm. Like, it's these big politicians, these corporations, Mm -hmm. and these people who are figureheads of morality and ethics or whatever that are choosing to remain, you know, like, silent Mm -hmm. or um, complicit and... Again, this goes back to the agenda and affiliations. Mm -hmm. Who is paying them to Mm -hmm. not talk and not want to bring attention to Mm -hmm. genocides when they could be, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like just to name a few, the genocides that are going on is like the genocide of Yemeni people, Mm -hmm. um, the genocide happening in Yemen by uh, Saudi Arabian sanctions, Mm -hmm. um, the Syrian genocide with Mm -hmm. Syrian refugees, the Iraqi genocide was something that, that occurred when, you know, like, the Iraq war was happening because you had civilians being slaughtered mm-hmm. at, like, astronomical rates, mm-hmm. you know, and and it was just, like, the entire country was destroyed. Mm-hmm. The Palestinian genocide, mm-hmm. it's literally apartheid over there right mm-hmm. now. Um, and so many more. And I've also noticed a lot of times that, and, like, don't get me wrong because this might be a controversial opinion Mm -hmm. and i feel like every genocide of like needs 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 a platform and Mm -hmm. it needs to have acknowledgement and recognition and recognition and an understanding right Mm -hmm. but i also feel like genocides that are have to do with the killing of black and brown people Mm -hmm. like people don't care as much Mm -hmm. like the the rwandan genocide Mm -hmm. uh literally compared to the kind of coverage that i've seen you know like the holocaust Mm -hmm. or other genocides um that kind of mostly affected white people because the victims of the holocaust were mostly white Mm -hmm. jews and prior to like them moving and occupying palestine there was no like middle eastern identity for Mm -hmm. jewish people it was Mm -hmm. all just like different europeans and it was more of a religion Mm -hmm. than you know like a race Mm -hmm. or like there was no israeli right Mm -hmm. And I feel like the Bosnian genocide, because they were Muslim, Mm -hmm. doesn't get as much Mm -hmm. notice. Mm -hmm. Um, The Rwandan genocide, uh, Darfur had a genocide Mm -hmm. a while ago. Mm -hmm. Even the Palestinian genocide, Mm -hmm. right? The Iraqi genocide, the Syrian genocide, Mm -hmm. the Yemeni genocide. Um, And Armenians, I feel like because they were Christian, 
um, and the perpetrators were Muslim, a lot mm-hmm. of people tried to kind of spin this to fit their own narrative about why Islam is bad and mm-hmm. violent. But, like, I don't know if you... I would consider Armenians white. I don't know if I would have enough context or information mm-hmm. to make a specific statement. On I that. wonder but if I they're in the Middle Eastern category. I, I don't know where they would be. Up north. Yeah, I don't know exactly what they would be. But I think that also, like, the categories, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. the fact that people who are Middle Eastern or North African have to identify as white on things like the census is, is so wrong and, like, something that I cannot speak about without getting heated. But, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just, like, saying, and I just kind of want us to question, like, when we see a particular genocide being acknowledged, mm-hmm. why is it that we're seeing that you know that genocide why Mm -hmm. is it that we're not seeing the rwandan genocide Mm -hmm. and i really feel like people across the world don't care as much about black and brown death Mm -hmm. as they do about white death Mm -hmm. and that's just a fact because racism exists and i mean look Mm -hmm. racism permeates our society in ways that we can't even imagine Mm -hmm. right and we're coming at this from being two women of color Mm -hmm. and there's still certain things that it blows my mind to see racism have that reach mm-hmm. so it's not like out of the ordinary or you know like way way out of left field to think that this is also something that's affected by racism mm-hmm. because every structure in our society is mm-hmm. i don't know what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that yeah no i think it definitely i mean when you look at the fact that who especially in the united states like who writes the history books mm-hmm. it's white people mm-hmm. so they are going to want to talk about white people yeah. um why is it that American history, or U.S. history, is required, and yet ethnic studies isn't elective. Mm-hmm. Um, questions like that, when you come, in, especially at a lower, like a high school or lower um, level in terms of public education, I'm talking about yeah. private education, private schools, public yeah. education, yeah. Um, private education is a different thing, and a lot of issues with that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised Mm -hmm. that we don't hear about other things that are going on even contemporarily or um, in the past Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that um, the holocaust is the thing that was needed to have a convention on genocide Um, I mean I'm really not surprised about that anymore after the amount of times that people have compared slavery to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm definitely not surprised about that considering what, you know, the the role that the U.S. had in creating the U.N. and the power that the U.S. has in the U.N., why am I, I'm not surprised that uh, the genocide of Native Americans is not considered a genocide at a, I mean, purely at a legal level. I think we all know that it is a genocide um, in in many ways continuing on. Mm what is it like it 500 years down so yeah it's not like it was a one and done thing mm-hmm. it's just you know like where do we even begin the beginning and end there is no timeline to the genocide because mm-hmm. it started as soon as you know colonizers mm-hmm. stepped their foot onto american soil mm-hmm. yeah and yeah i don't know i just feel like this episode was heavy but it's something that we need to talk about we mm-hmm. need to kind of look at the ugly parts of our mm-hmm. international history and think about why is it that we are not able to actually prevent genocides from happening and why is it that so many of us shy away 
from looking and really addressing these negative things. And I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of it has to do with like, it's just unpleasant, Mm -hmm. you know, especially with like, depending on what your political views are, which like, I really do not think you're a Republican if you're listening to this podcast, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) like news every day is just a lot. There's Mm -hmm. certain days where I'm really not doing all that much and I'm still exhausted by the time I get into bed and it's just because of emotional exhaustion. There's Mm -hmm. a lot going on that is draining especially for women of color, Mm -hmm. different marginalized communities, like the LGBTQ plus community Mm -hmm. and all of that. And I feel like you don't want to just kind of be like pushing negativity in front of your perspective and kind of changing like emotionally Mm -hmm. how you feel. You don't want to compromise Mm -hmm. your emotional stability. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But I also feel like at a certain point it becomes dangerous because that's when apathy comes into Mm -hmm. play. And I honestly think that, just being complicit and watching all of this unfold on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever is like, it just sits so wrong with me. And I'm constantly looking at things that, you know, the ordinary person can do, Mm -hmm. um, in order to kind of like, maybe not stop the genocide, Mm -hmm. but like make it so that we don't, we make it less easy for it to be accomplished. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's constantly changing. And honestly, after, you know, 10 weeks of taking that genocide class and doing, you know, like, cause it really like sparked something in me to like want to look into it myself. Mm-hmm. And I would make myself research things that, you know, people wouldn't usually want to research mm-hmm. and look into things. And I still don't really have an answer for like mm-hmm. what we can do because I just feel like apathy and selfishness is part of human nature Mm -hmm. it's how we survive sometimes Mm -hmm. right so i don't know um Mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know we'll try to keep you guys posted Mm -hmm. uh, on our website or anything Mm -hmm. like that if we do have like a comprehensive list but more than anything i just want you guys to hopefully be motivated to go out and do your own research and see what you can do to contribute Mm -hmm. to you know like help these different organizations that are working to stop these genocides Mm -hmm. or even have them recognized as genocide Mm -hmm. um because there's certain causes that might be more dear to your heart Mm -hmm. like i know because i'm i identify as mina middle eastern north african i am very sensitive to like middle eastern genocides Mm -hmm. um because i'm seeing people who look like me who look like my dad who speak like us be slaughtered and i think that is very different than somebody who doesn't Mm -hmm. you know have that affiliation um but I, I just want to leave you guys with that and hopefully that's something that you look into because, you know, like I don't ever want anyone to think that one opinion or one voice or mm-hmm. one like tiny little platform is too small to make a difference mm-hmm. because you never know. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the beginning of apathy. Mm-hmm. You don't want to let that mm-hmm. cycle start. Yeah, we all have our networks and you never know how sure. far your network can go. Yeah. You never know who you might have one degree of separation with. So, yes. Yeah. So I think with that, uh, ready to close off? Yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning in, guys. See you next time.